coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. When I got to the finish line, it was very, very lonely. Instead of having that self-achievement, there was nobody there to kind of pat you on the back, say, you're great, well done, look what you've achieved. And I was thinking to myself, I've nothing beyond this as far as the running is concerned. And I was directionless after that. I didn't want to talk about the race when I come back. So I didn't see it as a self-achievement. I thought of it as being the end of, of something. I didn't know what to do next. So I've since looked back on it, on that experience and it has happened to me again. I call it like a post-race depression. So I've just kind of learned how to deal with it. Maybe help others not to experience the same thing. Hello, my name is John O'Regan. You can follow me on Twitter and or Instagram at John O'Regan 777. I also host my own podcast, It's No Finish Line. This is my episode with Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Today we spoke with John O'Regan, international ultra runner, martial artist and running coach. John has conquered seven marathons in seven continents. This is the story of how a recreational runner learned about his body, studied physiology, educated himself on the importance of preparation and planning to conquer remarkable running feats, ultimately representing Ireland in several categories now. He competes in Ultra Trail, 100K and 24-hour and has a podcast called No Finish Line. John defined ultra running for us today and discussed why the sport is not crazy. Really, it's about passion. He loves to run and loves where it brings him. Hear about a journey from the Marathon de Sable to Swedish survival training, to the Yukon, poles, and what's coming up next. John leaned into resilience, how to build it, how to overcome that moment after the race when you feel a little low, when the race is over. We learned about the value of discipline, and stick into a course for a specific goal and how to listen to your body when you are physically and mentally challenging yourself. This was inspiring stuff. John O'Regan, thanks a million for coming on with us today. We were just chatting for one minute before the call and I was just saying to Connor, I said, what John does is crazy. And we said it to you and you were going to go and I said, hold that until we're live. So we're looking at what you're doing, what you've done and say that is crazy. But you're, you say it's not. No, it's not crazy. I see it as being my sport and it's what I have a passion for. And I think the people who would class it as being crazy who are involved in it might be doing it for the wrong reasons. They're doing it as something to talk about rather than something that they have that passion for. If you look at somebody doing maybe a sport like skeleton or skydiving, mountaineering, they don't see it as crazy. It's, it's what they do. And they're doing it for the reason that they enjoy it. It's, it's what fires them up. It's what gets them out of bed in the morning. That's their passion. It's not just to say, look at me doing these crazy distances or these crazy races. 
they're not crazy. When did you first discover that energy came from these events and that sport? Well, I didn't come from a very sporty background. I was somebody who was a bit gammy when playing football. I just wasn't coordinated. I got involved in martial arts. And that being individual rather than team sport, I started to excel in that because I there was nobody else depending on me. It was me doing something for me. And I was very much into the outdoors. I spent a lot of time hill walking, fishing. And I read about a race called the Marathon des Sab in the Sahara Desert, 250 kilometers in the Sahara Desert. And actually before I'd actually read about it, I'd seen it on Eurosport. And it was something you look at as entertainment, same way as you watch Formula One racing. But I read this book and it was a chapter in the book about the Marathon des Sab. And it made it sound as something that anybody could do. And I just thought to myself, well, maybe, maybe my adventurous side and the fact that I'm kind of into the outdoors, I'd like exploring and seeing new places. This could be something that I would like to do. I wasn't a runner at the time. I said I was still involved in martial arts and rock climbing, mountaineering. And I then set my sights on trying to do this race, which would involve some running. And that's really what started me running, was just reading about that race. Apart from that, I had no interest in it. And then building into that, what was the the feeling after the first race? What was it that came over you? Was it exhaustion? Or was it, Jesus, I really feel a sense of accomplishment with that? Well, because I wasn't a runner, I had to train from scratch. So I bought a book on uh, run training there was a run plan in it i followed the plan i did the dublin marathon in 2001 so it was april 2001 i read this uh, about the marathon they said did the race and then i set my sights on doing it so i gave myself a little over a year now when i started training for it i was educating myself at the time i was trying to learn as much as i possibly could about the sport about the environment i was going into i got in touch with athletes who had completed the race who I found weren't very informative because when you're successful at something, you don't always do an analysis to see what went right. You just coast on to the next thing. You you take the, the, the praise and the backslapping for having done it. But if you do something wrong, you start to think, I should have done this, I should have done that. And you have all these shoulda, coulda, wouldas that you can put forward to the next one. So I got in touch with people who were unsuccessful and I asked them, what would you do differently? And that's how I started to educate myself on how to go forward. I was learning from the mistakes of others. So I spent two years training. I signed up for a course in Trinity College, which is a basic course on, on sports science. I started learning a bit about the, the physiology that, and trained and went to the race, uh, right to the start line uh, after a bit overwhelmed thinking what was ahead of me. And then seven days later, I got to the finish line. And when I got to the finish line, it was very, very lonely. Instead of having that self-achievement, there was nobody there to kind of pat you on the back, say, you're great, well done, look what you've achieved. And I was thinking to myself, I've nothing beyond this as far as the running is concerned. I spent two years, everything was focused on this, everything. I planned ahead, I was analyzing what I had done, I was constantly changing my training. I didn't do anything that that wasn't going to add to my chances of success in completing this race. It was almost been like at the top of a funnel, big white funnel, and gradually I was coming down to the neck of it. And when I came, neck of it, the funnel was the start line, and I got down to the bottom, that was the finish line, and then I was just in a void. 
And I was directionless after that. I didn't even want to talk about Rafe when I come back. So I didn't see it as a self-achievement. I thought of it as being just the end of, of something. I didn't know what to do next. I didn't even want to talk about it. So I've since looked back on it, on that experience and it has happened to me again. I call it like a post-race depression. So I've just kind of learned how to deal with it and maybe help others not to experience the same thing. So the, no, no sense of achievement. It was a lonely place at the end of it. And you've mentioned the word passion, especially with that little preamble about people maybe doing skeleton and so forth about a sport that is just a sport you love. It's a sport you want to do. And here you are over that two-year journey and then that point in time when not quite the, uh, not quite, I suppose, the moment we thought it would be. How much of that process did you enjoy? Because here we are looking at somebody who went off and studied physiology, who put the preparation in, who was committed, who was consistent with training. Where does the enjoyment come into that? I enjoyed the planning and the process of training and seeing what was happening, see, seeing the, the results of, of the planning and the training leading to success along the way. And I was it was almost like the race was the exam. And I proved to myself that everything I did was, was right. I got it right. I finished that race without any blisters. I was one of the few people who had no problems uh, with their feet. So I achieved su success with that way at, at the end of it, that I completed the distance from, from being a non-runner. But because I didn't, running wasn't, wasn't my sport. When I got to the finish line, I just didn't know what to do next as far as the running was concerned. So I went back training in martial arts and doing the other stuff I was doing. So when you, when you get to that void, and I think probably a lot of people listening can maybe relate to it, we see it a little bit, especially in elite sports with the Olympics, when there's a talk of depression after achievement with medal winners, and they hit that, that high, and then it's exactly, as you mentioned, sort of a void feeling. What are your key lessons that you give the people for how to embrace that and maybe overcome that challenge? Well, as you mentioned with Olympians and elite athletes, they started from an early age, and they're, they're picked out as being high achievers. They're not trained to do anything else. All they know is their sport. And there there's so many people like them. And there's a fine line between success and failure. And nobody wants to know you when you're not doing well in, in those kind of sports. You're, you know, you're, you're not in the spotlight. So they don't know what to do next. So they don't have any other skills that are transferable. So you really have to be planning ahead. You said before I got involved in running, I was martial arts with my sport and I would have done quite well in that. But then I kind of, with the running, things changed. I, I got an invite. Well, I found out about a race that was happening at the North Pole and Mark Pollock, who you might be familiar with. After I come back from the Sahara Desert, a friend introduced Mark to me uh, as Mark was training for a race in the Gobi Desert, similar to the one that I had done. And because I was now the local expert, because no, there wasn't really too many people who had done the Mark they saw back then, back in the early 2000s. So I gave Mark a bit of advice on training and he did a race with his friend Nick Wolf. And after he came back, we became friends. We did a bit of training. We were training the Phoenix Park one day and I told him about a race I'd heard about in that was going to happen at the North Pole. And we decided we were going to do that race. So we did the race at the North Pole. And then I thought to myself, very few people have been here and the running has got me there. So that's when I started to kind of think a bit more about 
running as being something I was going to do. Now, if I was to step step back a little bit as well, I'd also done with the outdoors. I I trained in survival techniques. If you're familiar with Ray Mears, he'd be on TV. I would have known him back in the eighties. I've been back and forth to him a few times. I trained in Arctic survival up in Swedish Lapland. I was fortunate enough at the time to be at the same place where the Swedish Army do their survival training. And I was with the head of survival training for the Swedish Army. So I got to spend two weeks up there living off the land in, you know, you had to build your own shelters, you had to fish, hunt, make forage, make your own snowshoes. And I, that, that to me was what I liked, was the adventure. Then I heard about a race in the Yukon, which is just between northern Canada, just, just before you get to Alaska. And the race was along the Yukon River, headed from Whitehorse, the capital of Yukon, towards uh, Bravo, 100 miles away. So that race, again, was self-sufficient, similar to the marathon they saw. And I just thought that might be an opportunity to use my Arctic survival skills along with my in, you know, ability to, to cover a long distance like in the marathon they saw. Took part in that race. That went very, very well. I said I'd also run the North Pole Marathon. And then I just thought to myself, maybe, you know, there seems to be a lot of these type races going on, different, different parts of the world. And I was then trying to decide on what I would do next. And I started to look at races in extreme environments. And that was kind of giving me a reason to travel somewhere. And then I got more into the running. So I wanted to complete the most, I set myself a goal then of running an extreme marathon on each of the seven continents. And I decided I was going to try and do it in less than seven years. And that's what then got me over this feeling of post-race depression. I always knew what I was going to do next. But something else I didn't do, I didn't use one of these future races as a safety net for when things were going tough during an event that I could say, well, I'll save myself. I, I won't endure i won't persevere and suffer during this race because i have something else to do so i'll just take it easier i'll drop out and i'll go and do the i'll just save myself for the next race i always look beyond the finish line of the race but when i was in the race the finish line was the only thing i thought of nothing else mattered the preparations jumping out to me here and that story about how you know going to the yukon but the what's jumping out here is the swedish survival training and you're just you're just passing it off as if it's it's not too a big deal. Do you have a memory or a story you'd like to share with us about that? Because uh, maybe it's the snowshoes. What is it? Well, the head of the Swedish Army Survival School, his name was Lars Falls, and he, big man, and we were in the, it's called a lavu, like a wigwam, a Swedish tent, and we were sitting that, that of an evening. We might be spending the night there. So it might have been one, two o'clock in the morning. It doesn't get totally dark, but dark enough so you, you wouldn't, uh, you'd still be able to see by moonlight. You wouldn't need a head towards. And when we were inside at two o'clock in the morning, he said, if, if you want to experience Arctic survival, you would leave the warmth of this tent now and you go out and you would build a shelter. Do, this is, this is where a time when you have a choice. It's easy to do something when you've no other option, when your back's to the wall, easy to do something. But when you have a choice, that's when it becomes becomes difficult. And that's when you kind of build resilience and your, your kind of strength of character. So I left the tent and I went out and I dug a trench in the ground called a snow grave. And it might have taken me an hour or so. And I, I 
when I finished that, I went off for a bit, a bit of a walk, lovely, lovely clear night. And I met him down by the lake. He was sitting on a, on a, a fallen tree, but he spotted me and he shouted over, Irish man, Irish man. And I went over to him and he took a bottle of Jemison whiskey out of his inside pocket. And the two of us sat by the lake and we were drinking Jemison whiskey before I went back to my hole in the ground, got into my, my sleeping bag, which was on uh, a deer skin, lay down on some fallen branches. And I forgot to put my boots inside my sleeping bag and they were frozen solid the next morning. So I have a photograph of that I can send it on to you. Holy God. Show us now. Not many people have that memory to use. You mentioned resilience and you mentioned something that's very interesting because when we think of people who are resilient, we often think of them in adverse times when they have no other choice where only one thing is to overcome. And then we, when they do, we say they're resilient. But it's very interesting you mentioned that when you have a choice to avoid adversity, sometimes by choosing to go through it is when you truly build it. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Yes. Well, I think resilience is something that can be practiced and trained. And that's where I think sport allows you to practice uh, resilience. So it's it's during times when things are really, really tough and you have the option of, of stopping. But, you know, there's nobody forcing you to do these things. That's when it becomes easy. When you feel you're, you're not going to achieve what you wanted to achieve in the race. And I've seen it so many times. And I've had some really, really bad races. One in particular I can remember was the 100-kilometer World Championships over in Italy. And I, we were on a 10-kilometer loop. We had to do 10 times. And there would have been a water station, your own crew at a water station at 5K mark and then the start or 10K mark. But I missed my water at one of the stops. And that had a knock-on effect because, because of the heat. And I was badly dehydrated. I got to the point where I was passing blood. And I was at maybe 80, 90K. I told my crew, look, at, I'm in, kind of in, in a bad way here. I'm not feeling any pain, but I know I'm dehydrated. So they said, well, look, at all our scores for the team are in. So whatever you do doesn't matter as far as the team is concerned. So you, you can stop if you want. And when he said, if you want, and I can think of, well, I don't want, because I don't want to practice stopping. I don't want to practice giving in. You get good at what you do the most. So I thought this is the time now to practice going on when I have an option of, of stopping. There's no need for me to keep going. But I thought, well, this will make it easier when I'm doing one of my 24-hour races, which go on for twice as long. So I went on to finish the race. Uh, said everything was nearly packed up. I think the crew were hoping that I, I would actually stop. But like I said, you don't want to practice giving in. I've never not finished the race. The running's brought you to some amazing places. We're only getting a semblance of it now. Marathon de Sabla, the Pole, Yukon, Sweden, Italy, and there's so much more to the story. But, but what else does running do for you? Well, well to me, the, the running was, would bring me to these amazing places. That, that's first and foremost. When I, when I finished the last of my seven continents, which was Australia in 2009, so within the seven years, so over that seven years, I've done the most northern, the most southern, the one with the highest altitude, the one with the lowest elevation. I did the hottest, the coldest. I did the most extreme ones uh, as such on, on the planet at the time. Now, I'm not saying they're the toughest. They were, you know, it, it, you decide on, on, on what's tough, not what the race director is telling you. But they were all, you know, had some, some kind of a different angle to them. 
Then at 2009, I was in that same boat again. I was at the finish in seven continents. What do we do next? So I thought to myself, well, I'm after visiting Machu Picchu, which wasn't one of the seven wonders at the time. And I also got to visit uh, where is Petra. Well, I, I did a race uh, to finish the Dead Sea through the Syrian African Rift Valley. So they thought, well, there's two of the seven wonders. So I set my side, maybe running all the seven wonders of the world. So that was the next plan. But I got talking to somebody after I came back from Australia and they named Ian Keat, another Irish ultra runner. And he suggested that I should try a 24-hour race. And I asked what would, because of my, some of the races had me on my feet for 24 hours or longer. So I asked what would be a good distance to cover in 24 hours. And he said, well, 220 kilometers would be an above average result. That would be a good standard. So I set myself, this was August and then September, I went to London, came up with a plan to get me 220 kilometers. And I ran 220 kilometers and 21 meters, which I then found out was the best Irish in, uh, debut at that, at that distance. Now I, I did exactly what I had planned to do and, and that's it, I kind of set, it, set my plan and I followed it to a T. I probably could have done more, but if I tried to do more, I might have ended up doing less. That, that's the way it goes. So I just stuck with the plan. And I was then selected to run for Ireland because it also happened to be the international B standard, which had me eligible for selection to run for Ireland. So that was 2009. And since then, I went on to represent Ireland in 24 hours, 100 kilometers and ultra trail. So I've, and then the world masters 100K. So I've represented Ireland at least 10 times at those. So I moved from being somebody just going for the adventure to then becoming competitive. So it, it changed, my, my, my focus changed. I became a competitor. I didn't know that I was good enough to be, to be the competitor because I was just following and enjoying the process and doing what I liked doing. So I was never forcing what was happening. I was always doing what I needed to do to achieve success. So there was no stone left unturned. I put a lot of work and effort into the preparation. And I think part, I mentioned martial arts. I think it's partly because I come from a martial arts background. If you were to go to your local GA team, you can volunteer as a coach. You can go to your running club and volunteer as a coach. You can't do that with martial arts. You're taught to teach. And martial arts senior grade is an instructor. If you want to become a black belt, you have to be able to pass the skills on. That's what it, that's what it is. You become, you become an instructor. So you have to pay attention to detail. You have to learn how to pass it on. And if you want to be able to pass knowledge on, you have to have a better understanding of it yourself. Knowing the name of something is not just good enough. You have to be in-depth with it. And I think that's what has helped me move forward. I've no natural talent, but my ability to plan and prepare and to I suppose, not have notions about myself or what I'm doing. You always have to stay grounded. I was going into that exactly because when you become a recreational athlete, recreation jogger into an ultra endurance athlete for Ireland and representing the country, things must change in your psyche and your ego slightly. How do you keep grounded and not get carried away with that new status for yourself? Yeah, it is. It is difficult. But I, I learned that big lesson when I come back from the, the Marathon de Salle back in 2003. I, as I mentioned, I was becoming the local expert. And for a while, I was starting to enjoy that. And you can live off it, living off the past. But living off the past doesn't help you with the future. 
And when I went for my first run with Mark Pollock, I realized I was not that runner that people were telling me I was. And I found that I was letting my guard down. And when you let your guard down, if you're in a combat sport and let your guard down, that's when you're going to be humbled. So I then decided I'm never, ever going to let that happen again. The thing about fitness is you can't just hold on to it. As we said, it, use it or lose it. The human body has, has to be in motion if... It's, it's one of those things that, it, you know, with a machine, you, you, you keep using it, it'll break down, but, but the human body has to be used. You have to continuously work on fitness. Finishing a race doesn't give you a free pass to a future of health and fitness or future success. You have, you're only as good as what you're going to do, not what you have done. Say we're coming into your dojo this evening, okay? But not a martial arts dojo. You're, you're running preparation dojo and you're trying to get us ready to represent the country where would you start with us? What would you be, what are those first few weeks? What would you be looking for from Kiran and myself to gauge where we'd be in terms of our capacity to be a runner? You have a lot to do, by the way. For him, <laughs> no, not for me too. I also have, you know, through the Marks Arts, I have a background in security as well. So I, I profile you, I'd have a look at you the way you're dressed and you can tell a lot by the, maybe the footwear and the clothing somebody is wearing, whether they are athletic or if they are just someone who is trendy. And I would ask you for some recent performance indicators just to get an idea. I wouldn't make any assumptions. And I wouldn't want to, I suppose, uh, what's the word, be condescending. So I would let you maybe demonstrate in the way without doing too much. If I had you running on the track, I'd be talking to you as you go. I might ask you a question. And I could tell by your, your rate of breathing how quickly you answer me, whether you're trying to impress me or whether I'm holding you back. So I can, I can tell a lot by that. I look at you as I'm watching you warming up. I would do uh, a movement screening. Look how your, your legs are moving. And you can, you can pick it up very, very quickly because when somebody starts to move, you, you, start, you, you kind of get an idea of, of what their, their sports are. Very easy to pick out a footballer with the way one of their legs might lift as high as the other might be trailing a bit. If you were... A hurler, you might see the way one arm moves relative to the other arm. So there's, there's little things I could kind of pick up, but I would I would get you to do less. I always would err on the side of caution, and I would also ask you what your goals are, what you're what you're planning on doing, because it's about the athlete, not about the coach. I love that, and you've touched on the physical and the mental preparation and training. How much of a balance do you strike with that um, distribution, and what would you focus on initially? Well, there's an overemphasis now on the mental side of things. And I think because it's a lack of understanding. So people talk about how mentally strong they are. But if you don't have the, the body, you know, the, the physical ability to actually do what needs to be done, your mental strength will only bring you to the breaking point and bring you to injury. And, you know, I think people are, are reading books by guys over in America, whatever, you know, about, uh, I don't want to go mentioning any names, but I, I can see it with, with, with a lot of young guys now, and they're, they're talking about how strong they are, and ultra running seems to be a buzzword, and they're talking about how mentally strong they are, and it's 90% mental, but if you haven't got that hundred, that, that physical side of it actually built up, it doesn't matter how mentally strong you are, you're, 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 you're going to just bring yourself to injury and setback after setback, and that will affect the mental side of things because you will start to i suppose it'll 
it, it will make you kind of go, go in on yourself. So I think you have to train the physical. And while you're training the physical, that's when you train the mental side of things. It's like we mentioned, it's, it's the, the pushing through. The, it's, it's the going out to train when no, when you don't have to, you know, there's, there's nobody watching you when they're keeping an eye on you. It's doing things when you don't need to do them, but it's doing the right thing at the, at the right time. And also through experience, you should recognize the difference between the pain of an injury or the pain of improvement. The pain of improvement is just something that when you've kind of gone beyond where you've normally gone, but you know it's not an injury, it's, it's a, a symmetrical pain whereby it's on both sides at the same time. Whereby pain of an injury, isolated in the one area. So you've got to know you stopped. Is, is your mental strength telling you no pain, no gain, you should push through that? That's when you're going to get a big setback. So you've got to know those differences, but you need to do the physical and let that train the mental. I think it also touches on fads of physical training as well. We see yeah. foam rollers were coming to the fore, except what really makes the difference and improves your time or gets you more scores in a hurling match is the physical capability, the basics, the fundamentals that if you look at the best teams generally across the season, if you're going to win in All-Ireland, it's normally the most conditioned or at least the team conditioned to a standard that is going to be there and the other team competing is likely going to be at that standard or, or the same. If we're thinking for individuals at club level, at club running, if they're looking to improve themselves and we've sort of focused on physical, what are the key attributes that you look for? Is it aerobic fitness? I know it's obviously going to be a breakdown of different sports, but what is the, the key basics that you would focus on for any athlete across that might just be a recreational runner or a recreational club player in hurling or football? Okay, but let's see, hurling or, or football, I think speed is very, very important and having, having raw speed. So uh, speed and power, they're relative to all sports. They're, they're just expressed in a different way. So if you're looking at, say, uh, speed on a football pitch, it's going to be chaotic. It's not in a straight line. It's moving in different directions. But in order to be able to do that, you have to train, I think, in a straight line to train the technique. So you've got to learn the rules and abide by the rules before you can break the rules. So I say train yourself to, to become a, a sprinter where you're not holding a hurl in your hand, you're not looking at football, you're just doing raw speed development and then get onto, your, get onto the pitch and do some of your sport-specific drills. But so get, the, get, get the, the fundamentals, you know, get, get, get them right. There was a time, I suppose, for some sports, maybe like hurling football, I know with the martial arts, running was seen as, as a punishment. That if you were, or, or you know, push-ups, you know, if you weren't doing something right, you know, get down and give me twenty push-ups or do ten laps of the hall. So if you're looking at it as a punishment, you you won't grow to like what you're doing or see that there is a byproduct from that punishment. That whether it's push-ups, they are making you stronger. If it's running, it's making you fitter aerobically. But in your mind, this is a punishment. This 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 is bad. This is what I get when I do something wrong. So I have coached some hurled uh, football teams and with some of the drills I was doing, I was kind of being told by the coach, well, we wouldn't normally run that long. So keep it shorter. But in order to, I think, train the aerobic engine, you have to go that little bit further, you know, and not always. And I find people can kind of go to 
fast when they're trying to train that. So you got to know the specifics as well of how to train the different parts of the machine. Like it's a, you got to, it's a system. It has to be trained as one uh, to operate as one, but there are individual parts of it that have to be tuned, tuned in to kind of get everything working in the right way. For those listening to this, that mightn't understand the, the distinguishing features between that transition to ultra running what is it what makes you an ultra runner and how does somebody come up with defining themselves as that well ultra running is thought of as anything further than a marathon distance so typically it starts at 50k but i suppose ultra runners wouldn't really see 50k as being the start point because that's really a long training run for an ultra runner so 100 kilometers would be really the start point and then and then you have time-based races with the difference between a time-based race and a distance-based races let's say with 100k you have a set distance and you have to cover that distance in the fastest possible time with a time-based race you have a set time and you have to cover the most distance in that set time and a time-based race is what we would look at as being ultra running because you, that's when you have to get everything right. Your pacing, your nutrition, minimizing the amount of stoppage time you have, and also being able to suppose, uh, compete against your, your competition, knowing when to hold back, knowing when to push forward. But typically what happens during a 24-hour race is you would see that the athletes who are at the front at the beginning will generally be at the back towards the end of it, unless there's somebody who's really experienced. And it's the athletes who can hold themselves back and not get caught, get caught up in the emotion of the race. They're the ones that will typically do well. So time-based time races, and then you know we, it goes on to 48 hours, 72 hours, and then they go into days, six days being a, a popular format. But 24 hours, the one I mentioned, that's the one that we have awarded the European Championships at. So that's recognized by the IAAF and Athletics Ireland send teams to the 24-hour, 100k and 50k World and European Championships. So what's coming across is you're very much a student of the game, a student of ultra running and several sports. You put in a lot of preparation work. You look at the mechanics, you look at how your training can be influential towards performance. And a story about that is just in GAA, Shane Walsh, who plays for Galway, who would have been very prominent this year in the championship, he would have studied solo and techniques of past players like Tommaso Shea. So he adopted his solo and ultimately improved performance. That was an innovation for Shane. What kind of innovations are you seeing in ultra running that exciting you or you're even trialing yourself? Well, I, I like to look outside the box and look at other sports. There's only so much you can see that's within your, your own area. So I, I look at uh, other athletes and other sports and, and I, I talked to them and I was watching a TED talk there a while back by Rodney Mullen, skateboarder and I found it very, very interesting because he talks about uh, with, with skateboarders, they were always looking to it was all about innovation, so you were constantly trying to come up with, with new tricks, new routines but they're limited to what they can do. Their environment limits them. So that's why you see skateboarders going to car parks and they'd be in city streets and they'd be on using the services that, that is available to them. So what he was what, what would be doing is uh, the tricks will be dependent on what they have around them. 
So when I'm coming up with my own kind of training ideas about chatting to somebody, I look at the, first of all, what event they're training for. So the event becomes the context. So that's the important part. And then the content is the specific training to get them to the event. So training has to adapt to the event that the athlete has in mind. So the sessions as such would remain the same. Like you have tempo runs, easy runs, recovery runs, long runs, but you, but you would have to employ that content into the context. So if you were looking at doing a track ultra, you might do a good bit of your training on the track. But boy, if you're doing trail, we do the exact same sessions, but we will bring them into a, a trail environment. So that's something that I would have picked up mm-hmm. from, from watching how skateboarders uh, perform. And then if you look at the uh, channel swimmer, channel swimmer, they it's harder for them to just stop or give up because if you, you know, it's sink or swim. And that's the same thing with, with ultra running and, and the long distances, that if you can apply that other mentality that you don't stop because you're feeling tired, you stop when it's finished. And you know, so I, I try to look at as many different sports as possible. And then if you're talking about sports psychology, most of the money there seems to be in golf and baseball. So I, I would read uh, books on sports psychology related to other sports. I don't go looking for stuff on ultra running because if you know your own game, you can apply lessons learned from somewhere else to it. Like I, did you watch uh, The Last Dance on, on Netflix? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I found it very, very interesting. A friend of mine told me to watch it. He enjoyed it. But I was, I then told an athlete to watch it and she came back to me saying, I watched last dance, The Last Dance. I know there's a reason you told me to watch it, but I don't know why. I was looking at it as a coach and I was explaining, well, you've got to look at it through the lens of an athlete and see how the team is interacting and listen to what the coaches are saying. So she went back and watched it again. And then it wasn't just something that was entertainment. It was something that was educational and informative. And since then, I've set in on lectures with Steve Kerr. And I've bought uh, Phil Jackson and his son book of five, uh, five rings or, or something like that. But, yeah, yeah. And I thought that that was very, very interesting. And the one thing that really stood out to me was one of the players, Dennis Rodman, was he was kind of getting a free pass. He could go off and, and do what he wanted. He was leaving him uh, to, he wasn't turning for training sessions, but he still performed on the basketball court. So we, he still did what needed to be done. And one of his comments was, not every wild horse needs to be tamed. So, you, so that kind of showed me, okay, well, there is an individuality with every athlete and the approach. So coaching has to be athlete-centered and it can't just be something that is generic where you apply the same thing to everybody. You have to, you can train as a group, but you're training individuals in a group. Highly recommend you check out his other book, Sacred Hoops, which came out before it. Um, Phil, Zen master. John, so much, so much in this. We're kind of written down an awful lot. What's coming up? What's exciting you? What's the next big goal on the horizon? Because you're a man of aligning right. with the goal. Next, what, what month? July, August, I will be over in Berlin with uh, some athletes taking part in the 100 kilometer World Championships. Then, September, I'm in Italy 
with a team taking part in the 24-hour European Championships at September. Then October, I'm doing a 250-kilometer race in the Sahara Desert with a visually impaired athlete, Sinead Kane. Wow. I come back from, from the Sahara Desert, I think of, of a week. I come back into work for a couple of days because I don't have enough holidays. And then I fly to the Copper Canyon in Mexico. And I'm taking part in a 250-kilometer race in the Copper Canyon with the Tarahumara Indians, who some people might be familiar with from a, a book that came out in, I think it was the, the 90s, called Born to Run, which kind of kickstarted this whole barefoot running craze. Mm. So that's that's my next two, and uh, don't think of anything else after that. I think that's enough. Yeah, plenty <laughs> there. Yeah, good to see you're still getting exposure to them new places and environments, and yeah, maybe the same know, places for you. Based in the Sahara Desert wasn't something that was planned. I'd, I'd already signed up for the one in Morocco, and uh, I was just asked to do the one in the Sahara, and I just kind of think, well, okay, well, I was planning on being competitive in in Mexico. But the thoughts of actually getting into the desert again is now I'll just take a step back and I look at completing the two races and just enjoying the experience and helping to get a bit, bit of my fitness back. There back in 2017, I think, I did a marathon on each of the seven continents within seven days with, with Sinead. Originally, I did the seven continents in seven, just under the seven years. And then I got to experience it in six days, nine hours. So it was, it was nice being able to make that uh, comparison. So you've given us an awful lot, plenty of insight so far. And we've one more question for you. And from your experiences, you certainly are a person we want to ask. What does high performance mean to you, John? No, that's a tough question. Because high performance means a lot. It means different things to different people. And I, people kind of think high performance means having access to very fancy gym, having access to a track, having, having everything you need, having a team of physios and backroom staff all there to help you out. But I think high performance is the application of, of you being 100% in what you do, paying attention to detail, not looking at what somebody else is doing and believing, well, if I had this, if I had that, you've got to be there 100%. You've got to put the work in with regard, not just the training, but actually learning as much as possible about the sport that you're involved in. And when I was training for some of my races, if, if I didn't believe that something was going to work or I tried it out and I wasn't getting the results, I didn't do it anymore. This is like the way of the warrior, the, the, the samurai. If, if something didn't work on the battlefield, it was abandoned. They went on to do something else. They were always evolving, always improving. So to me, high performance is just using what you have when you have, not looking for excuses. You kind of kind of results and excuse at the same time, but always look at suppose, getting better. One of the tips I would give to any athlete would be to keep a training diary. Because what you measure and monitor will actually, you know, those times when you're not feeling good, you can kind of look back at what you've done. Or if you have picked up an injury you can look back and you can do a root cause analysis try and trace it back to where the injury actually happened and sometimes you can't find that that uh, overtraining is something that affects athletes and keeping a diary can help that you can be overtrained by not doing enough you can be overtrained by doing too much but i think for the most part 
people get overtrained by not doing enough training. They just try to do all hard stuff and they leave out the easy bits. But if you leave out the easy bits are the kind of the stepping stones, they're, they're the glue that joins the hard stuff together. You have to do the easy work in order to do the hard work. So high performance is, I suppose, knowing as much as you possibly can about what you're doing and then knowing how to do it. Knowing the name of something is not enough. You have to get deep down into it and know the reasons why. John O'Regan, thanks very much for coming on, sharing your story with us, teaching others and us and doing a lot of wonderful things, wishing you the very best over the next couple of months and, and beyond that. And again, just grateful for your time today. We really enjoyed it. It's a while since I've been a guest on a podcast. I, I'm, I'm not in the same demand now as what I have been. <laughs> I'd say I'm almost right. semi-retired. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.